My name is Raul Rusiga. I'm a senior here at Syracuse University studying health and exercise science on the pre-physical therapy track. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of having Dr. Mike Haney with me. His department is under the Strategic Initiative and Innovation here at Syracuse University. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for coming on. You uh, have quite a background from being 60 Minutes, meeting presidents, have your own TED Talk. <laughs> it's, a, it's an honor having you today. Thanks. Thanks. So uh, I'll start off with, um, what was your job in the military? So I had a few different jobs in the military. My my core job was a logistician. So I, I did acquisition and contracting and, and logistics for the Air Force. But I also had um, several, like many um, folks in the military do, several other duties along the way. So I, I worked for a couple of years as the, it's called the aide-de-camp to an Air Force four-star general. So I did that for two years. And and then I also had the good fortune of um, being picked up to go teach at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. So I did two different assignments as an instructor at the Air Force Academy. Wow. What was your favorite due station? The Air Force Academy. No, <laughs> doubt, no doubt. As a matter of fact, that's why I'm here. I, I really um, fell in love with teaching and, and being around students um, as a consequence of my time at the Air Force Academy. And, and that was actually what motivated me to get out of the Air Force. Uh, my time... As an instructor, the academy was coming to an end, and I, I really did not uh, want to walk away from higher education. So I decided to get out of the Air Force at that point, and that's what brought me to Syracuse University. Well, that's fantastic. You uh, you found what you wanted to do post-military while you are in? Yeah, I did. I wow. did. Yeah. Um, so what made you, during that time in the military, realize how much you love teaching? It was unexpected. Uh, you know, I had the opportunity, part of the assignment teaching at the Air Force Academy was prior to that assignment, the Air Force sent me to school to get earn my PhD. So while I was an active duty Air Force officer, um, I was assigned to the University of Colorado at Boulder to earn my PhD in business strategy and, and entrepreneurship. Um, and, you know, candidly, I saw the assignment teaching as an opportunity to go to school, to get a PhD. I didn't necessarily see myself um, spending the rest of my life as a teacher, as a, as a professor. Um, but then after I completed the PhD and, and got to the Air Force Academy, um, I just fell in love with teaching. You know, so it, was, it wasn't a purposeful decision on my part, you know, recognizing that I wanted to go be a professor to take that assignment. It was more as a means to get to graduate school. Um, and my intention was to do my time teaching at the Air Force Academy and then just go back to my my core Air Force job, because um, at that point I, I had been in the military for 14 years. So typically folks retire at 20 years. And, but, you know, the reality is I, I just, um, I, I really fell in love with, with being around students and mentoring students and teaching. And, um, you know, but the, the challenge for me was I still had six years left before I hit 20 in the, in the military. But the reality is I couldn't imagine 
um, at that point doing anything else in my life. So even though I was, you know, almost to 20 years, I decided to, to walk away at 14 just because the idea of treading water for six more years to get to 20, doing something that I didn't love as much as I love teaching. I just couldn't bring myself to do that. So I made the hard choice of getting out at 14 years. That's a very tough choice. It's like you're so close to retirement and yeah. getting that pension every month. Yeah, it was. It was. But again, um, I've never been somebody sort of motivated by money or, or you know, those kinds of rewards. And I found something that I, that you know, I was passionate about getting up every day and going to work when I was at the Air Force Academy. So here I am. Um, I'm glad you alluded to money. The next question is, how important of a factor should money play when a veteran plans his life post-military? Yeah, so it, it, it's, it's a good question. And it's one that's hard for, it's hard for someone not in that veteran's shoes to answer. Uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll start off by that because, or start off with that, because, you know, the reality is um, everybody that leaves the military is, is in a different situation as it relates to family, as it relates to all kinds of other concerns and responsibilities that they may have. So I, you know, I don't want to sit here and say, for example, money shouldn't be important because the reality is I've not walked in your shoes. I'm not in your particular situation. Um, and, and for some at that point of transition, it might matter a lot, you know, cause they might have debt or they might have, again, you know, maybe they're just starting a family and, you know, to the responsible thing is to, is to care about those issues. You know, that said, you know, I, I am also somebody who I have, I have always thought about the, the choices I make in terms of my professional life as a function of, you know, my passions and, and what gets me excited. And because in part, cause I'm convinced that if, if you, um, whatever vocation you choose, if you are, passionate about it, you're going to do it well. And if you're going to do it well, over time, the, the financial piece will take care of itself. The, those rewards will come. Wow. That's great. Yeah. Every is a little different. So it's kind of hard in the previous podcast, me and uh, another student are trying to like, dictate, like, how much money should you have saved when you get out? It is kind of difficult in this situation. It, it, it is because I, I think everybody's, I, I'm a big believer in empathy, and you know, which is the idea of of acknowledging that you've not walked in, in somebody else's shoes. And, you know, so I, I, I bristle a little bit when, when people get very sort of a, objective with regard to what other people should be doing in their lives and what they should, what should matter to them. So, um, you know, I, I think it's one thing to, to generally suggest some advice or best practices, but you're not going to find me being somebody who's going to be very directive with you or anybody else in terms of what you should be doing with your life. Okay. Um, well, that's fantastic. Post-military, did you come straight to Syracuse to teach? I did. Or? My, my more, I mean, when, when you say straight to Syracuse, on, on a Thursday in August of 2006, I was still wearing a uniform in, in Colorado. and on Or on a Tuesday. On a Thursday of that same week was my first faculty meeting as a <laughs> civilian professor at Syracuse University. And, and I have to say, I thought I'd made... After that faculty meeting, I thought I made the biggest mistake of my life because, you know, here I thought um, I'm going to get to, you know, I'm going to meet my new colleagues and we're going to we're going to talk about the mission and everything that we have to get done this year. And and that first faculty meeting devolved into an argument among, you know, I sat quietly in the back of the room, but 
an argument among um, other faculty members about how to develop a point system to determine who was going to get the larger offices in the business school. So <laughs> it, it was not exactly an inspiring start um, for me, but um, got much better from there. You had less than a week to transition. I did. And just feeling like that's, that's tough. Yeah. The veterans take a whole year off before they start school sometimes. Yeah. You know, for me, it was, um, you know, I had some obligations at the Air Force Academy that I committed to. So, um, you know, over the summer at the service academies, they're, you know, those, the students at, at a military academy are not like a typical college student in that even over the summer, they're engaged in all kinds of training programs, and, and I have committed to be involved in some of those. So I wanted to keep that commitment. So I, I made my transition. Um, those programs ended at the end of July. So that's when I stepped away and, and started moving east to Syracuse. Are you originally from New York? I'm not. No, I grew up in Philadelphia. Um, oh, that's right. You're an Eagles fan, unfortunately. I, I am an Eagles fan, yes. Um, <laughs> Grew up in Philadelphia, and then, uh, you know, the Air Force, in my 14 years, I, I PCS nine times in 14 years, so I was all over the country um, in those 14 years. Wow. Ooh, quite a bit. Of- I did. I did, yeah. Wow. Um, so, you got Syracuse University. You're a hotshot professor, really killing it. Uh, when did you decide to open, operate the IBMF? Well, you know, so... The reality is the story is a little different than you just set up in that um, I, I wasn't super happy when I got here. Um, and, you know, I, I think I made uh, I made a mistake in understanding maybe what I was getting into. I, I assumed that the things I loved about teaching at the Air Force Academy would translate directly to Syracuse University. And, and it turns out, and this this isn't a commentary on Syracuse University. It just, it turns out that the the experience at a military academy that for both students and for faculty is different than at a civilian university. And, you know, I realized what, you know, what I loved at the Air Force Academy was, you know, being able to mentor students and, and um, be engaged with them outside the classroom as well as inside the classroom. And it, it's a little different here. And, you know, I, I was sort of grieving for that, that larger sense of purpose and connectedness when I, and, and that's when I got the idea. And at that point, importantly, all I'd known in my adult life was the military and that community. So that's when I got the idea um, well before the idea to start the IBMF was to start a small program in the Whitman School of Management in the business school here um, around veterans and entrepreneurship. I had been doing some um, work with a PhD student who was studying immigrant entrepreneurship. Why is it that, that people that immigrate to the United States start small businesses at a much higher rate than others? And um, I was unfamiliar with that academic literature, so I was doing some study on my own so I could support this PhD student. And I came across a parallel literature on people with disabilities. And, you know, it turns out people with disabilities actually start small businesses uh, at a rate about seven times higher than others in this country. And if, if you think about it for a second, it's sort of intuitive. They can, you know, they can leverage entrepreneurship, business ownership as a way to craft a vocation 
um, in the face of what might be barriers to traditional employment because of a disability. You know, so for me, that was a, a, a little light bulb moment because I was very aware that about 30% of people getting out of the military in our, you know, as a consequence of our post 9-11 wars were leaving with disabilities. So I went to the dean of the business school at the time, a, a, a guy named Mel Stith, and Mel himself was a Vietnam era army veteran. And, and I said to him, hey, you know, let me start this program where we bring, um, you know, injured service members, veterans to the university over the summer and put them through a program to help them launch and grow small businesses. We called it the Entrepreneurship Bootcamp for Veterans with Disabilities. Um, and, you know, I thought I was going to have to sell him on this thing. And three minutes into our conversation, you know, he's sketching out how we do this. And he got very excited. So we launched that program and, and uh, delivered the first one in the summer of 2007. Um, and it really, we had no aspiration. It was just going to be something that was going to be meaningful to me. I didn't have a plan to do anything bigger. And, but, but we were surprised that other universities came to us and said, hey, can we do this too? So the next year we expanded that program to UCLA and Texas A&M and Florida State. And then the next year, LSU and University of Missouri. And, but all of that came before the IBMF, before the Danielle Institute for Veterans and Military Families. Um, but it, what we realized doing the, this first program was that there was a big gap in higher education with regard to how higher ed as a community is, in, is sort of meaningfully engaged in the social, economic, wellness issues impacting vets and their families. So, so that was the genesis of, you know, another pitch, which was, why don't we create an institute at Syracuse University focused on um, the, the military-connected community, veterans, military family members. So that, that, was, that was then in 2011 that we launched the Institute. But really, the work got started in 2007. So the first phase of making Syracuse University the best place for vets was successful. So successful after one year, other schools started reaching out to you. Yeah. That's well, crazy. I, I mean, I think, I think they saw a way, like we did, to have impact. Um, you know, we tend to think in higher education about um, what we do as a function of degrees, of, of, of putting students through programs that, you know, ultimately result in a degree. But the reality is there's all this intellectual capital on this campus that can be leveraged in ways um, other than contributing towards degree programs. And, you know, this, this was an instance, you know, the, that, that first program, we, we, we built it in a way where it started online for about 45 days, and then we brought a group of 20 veterans to the campus for, um, you know, sort of an eight-day immersion, a boot camp. That's why we called it, you know, use the, the yeah. military term. You know, they went from about 7.30 in the morning till 10 o'clock at night for eight days, and then we um, put them into a, a post-program support network of, of um, for the next year to help them get a business off the ground. And, you know, what we realized was, um, you know, we can, and all the people who taught in it were SU professors, um, but different than a degree program, they would come in and teach a module on this or a module on that. And it was, it was super impactful. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of other institutions looking for a way to engage in this community you know, saw that and said, we can do that too. 
So that's how it worked. Yeah. Was this uh, happened before or after uh, Boots to Business? Oh, this was this was this was the first thing. So Boots to Business, which is our you know now the the federal government's transition pathway to business ownership out of the military, um, that's managed by the U.S. Small Business Administration. Um, it was uh, the EBV program here was the impetus for Boots to Business. So the SBA came to us and said, you've developed this competency around veterans and business ownership. Can you help us create a formal transition program for service members out of the military that we operate on military installations to help them become? So we wrote the original curriculum and the model and, and, and all of that and essentially gifted it to the federal government. How does that make you feel that something you create, like your baby, is now getting taught to every transitioning service member? You know, it feels great. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the you know the reality is, um, you know, I I, I think it, it it's um, it, it it's not quite what it was when we proposed it. I'm trying yeah. to choose my words a little <laughs> carefully, but you know, at the end of the day, there's always this tension in government about. Um, resources and um, you know and I think what we what we originally built and proposed and, and was implemented um, you know all the way back in in 2000 2008 2009 2010 you know today it's a very different program it's it, I, I would argue it's probably not um, quite as robust as it was then you know all that said to get you know up into that point um, for 50 years, there was no formal business ownership transition out of the military. So in that regard, it's a great thing. So your name and face, you know, Dr. Michael Haney, associated with pretty much every military um, program on campus. But do you, you did not single-handedly create these programs, oh, right? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, you know, the reality is, um, you know, we have, we have a great, uh, a great team, you know, both at the at the IVMF at the institute, but then also um, at the Office of Veteran Military Affairs. You know, you know, one of the things, um, if I'm being entirely candid, when I got here at, in 2006, um, Syracuse University maybe was not the most welcoming place for military connected students. I felt that as a faculty member, um, you know. The, there was a when when Ken Severud arrived as chancellor in 2014. Um, you, you know, the, for those of us doing this work, the war, the world changed a little yeah. bit because because Chancellor Severud, um, you know, is a student of history and and he understood that Syracuse University as we know it today um, really came about as a function of of decisions that Chancellor Tully, William, Chancellor William Tully, made. Um, at Syracuse in the in the 1940s, when he um, saw an opportunity to take what the time was a regional college and 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 grow it to a nationally relevant academic institution by welcoming tens of thousands of returning World War II vets to to Syracuse University, and you know Chancellor Severud saw an opportunity for history to repeat itself, if you will, and and do that again. Um, with with the post 9-11 generation of veterans. So he made a commitment in 2014 to really set Syracuse University apart as an exemplar for others in higher ed and, and to be the university that um, is, is, is welcoming in, in 
every way that that word means to military connected students. And that was really the the impetus for creating the Office of Veteran and Military Affairs that supports our, our military connected students on campus and, and expanding a lot of the, the work we do outside the silos of, of the Institute or the OVMA to all of our schools and colleges at Syracuse. When I was doing my application letter for Syracuse University, I transferred my community college. I did a lot of research on Syracuse. I really wanted to get into school. Mm-hmm. I found it so astonishing how just in the 40s, uh, Chancellor Talley was just spearheading this idea. Like, yeah, Syracuse University had a helping hand in creating the first GI Bill. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, it, it is pretty remarkable. I mean, Chancellor Tully happened to have a personal relationship with President Roosevelt. And, you know, President Roosevelt, um, when, the, when the end of World War II was in sight, um, turned his attention on, t- turned his attention to, you know, how do we successfully support and transition what would be about 12 and a half million um, Americans returning now as veterans from World War II. And, and he asked, Roosevelt asked Chancellor Tully to be part of this group that he put together to figure out that question. And, and it was from that group that the original GI Bill was, was conceived. And, you know, Tully came back here and, and he wrote a one-page letter that I know you've seen. Um, and he invited, um, in the face of the GI Bill, he invited any returning World War II veteran that wanted to earn a college degree, even if you hadn't finished high school, to enroll at Syracuse University. And, and we went from a school in, in 1944 of, of maybe 4,100 students to within just a few years, close to 18,000 students. And that entire Delta were returning World War II veterans. And, you know, and, and they had the effect that, that Chancellor Tully envisioned. They, they transformed the institution in, in some pretty fundamental ways and and set the conditions for SU to exist as we know it today. Yeah, that's part of the reason I have so much respect for Chancellor Severu. Like having veterans in the classroom uh, is like very um, impactful at the end of the classroom. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean and not just in the classroom but in student government on our on our on our club clubs, our our club sports, our athletic teams. Um, you know, I, I think if 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 you look at um, diversity in all of its forms, um, you know, one, one, one metric or measure of diversity is diversity of, of life experience. And I, I think if you put and all that diversity in an academic environment makes us better. And if you look, you put, you know, your example, you put a, um, a, a student veteran in a, in a political science class who, you know, with, with 18, 19 year olds whose experiences very different than that of, a, of, of someone yeah. who may be deployed to, you know, to the Middle East and to, to Europe or South America, wherever it is. Um, it brings a different dynamic to a classroom that makes everybody better at the end of the day. So, uh, Dr. Haney, when you were, you know, you're well in now, Syracuse, you bought into the culture. <laughs> How did you envision the, the analysis to, of any resources? So... Um, you know, I, as I as I said earlier, I I think the more the more work I started doing in this space, the more disillusioned I was with with how higher education as a community broadly was was really not um, meaningfully engaged in this community, and you know, so the idea came of you know, well, why don't we play a leadership role here and 
Um, you know, in, in higher education, we love to start institutes and centers for everything. And I, I was really surprised that there did not exist in higher education an academic institute or center focused on the social, economic, wellness concerns of veterans and their families. So um, I said, why not Syracuse? I, I put a, um, a proposal together, a, you know, sort of a pitch deck and, and uh, took it to the leadership at the university at the time. So this was before Chancellor Severud um, was here. And, you know, it was well received, but there was no... Um, Backing up? There were, well, there's no money. Huh. Um, <laughs> you know, so the challenge for me was to go out and find the money to get this institute off the ground. And, and the university at the time had, a, had an existing relationship with J.P. Morgan Chase that had nothing to do with veterans. It was, a, it was a partnership that we had with J.P. Morgan related to some cybersecurity programs that we were running in. Um, but I leveraged that relationship to get uh, a meeting. I got a 10-minute meeting with uh, a gentleman named Frank Bizignano. Frank, at the time, was the global chief operating officer at J.P. Morgan. And my, my plan was to go pitch J.P. Morgan to fund the creation of this institute at Syracuse. So, you know, I, I fly down to New York City and get in there. And I, I had, I think I had put like 40 PowerPoint slides together to give them. Oh, you know, to officer fashion? Yeah, to <laughs> Air Force officer, right? Yeah. Um, and I never had to take him out of my briefcase. I, I, I you know, I, I pitched him the general idea and he said, how much, how much do you need? And, and I said, well, uh, I'd like seven and a half million dollars. <laughs> um, and we laughed, but he gave it to me. Oh, wow. Yeah. So my only regret is I didn't ask for more. I should have, should have asked for more. But J.P. Morgan wrote us a, an initial five-year grant of $7.5 million to seed the creation of the, of the IBMF. And um, that's, how we, that's how we got it off the ground. Something astonished me that I didn't really realize So I got here was like, truly how much money is in the world that if you have a good enough idea and you really want it, you, yeah. could, you could get the funding. Yeah. It's... Uh, you know, a, a lot of it is just being able to get to people that want, that, that have those kind of resources and want to make a difference. How did that make you feel that, you know, at one point you were an officer of the Air Force and I'll, then a couple years later, you're in front of uh, a big shot in the J.P. Morgan? You know what? Honestly, I think um, I was so naive to all of this that it didn't, um, in, in, a, in a way that was good, because I didn't know that that was a big deal, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, and, and therefore, I wasn't, you know, intimidated or, you know, I, I have I because I still um, interact with folks like that now a lot. I, I see I see how some folks are, um, you know, uh, in awe of, of of people and positions. But the reality is they're just like the rest of us. Yeah. Um, and, you know you're better off remembering that in the context of your engagements with them. So, um, but it, it was, you know, all that said, it was still, what was humbling about it was that um, he wanted to take a chance on the idea. Wow. So how, you, have, you have had like a highlight real career post-military. <laughs> how has that differed from a career in the military, just from like personal wise, dealing with people yourself, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know that I call it a highlight real career, but, you know, I've had some great opportunities and, you know, I, but I had those same, I had those same great opportunities in the military. You know, I, I still miss my military service. Um, you know, 
because of largely though because of the people um you know i i I don't miss a lot of the um day-to-day grind yeah okay (laughs) i was going to use a different more colorful language so that's better what you said is better you know i i don't miss waking up and you know going to work and finding a little yellow slip of paper on my desk saying that i have to you know um report for urinalysis this morning (laughs) or or something like that but um but I do miss the people because they're because you know what what I found to be great about my military experience was um you know this this idea of a group of people working toward a common purpose every day and um and I and I do miss not that that doesn't happen at, at at Syracuse but it is harder and I I think while while I was in I just had great opportunities and the air force you know my plan was to say for you know i i i was able to go to college in the first place because of our an rotc scholarship you know i don't come from a family that had lots of money and you know i had i had a younger sister who also wanted to go to college and and i know that my family would have been a struggle to get both of us into college so i figured this was a way to just because i was older didn't seem fair that you know that (laughs) I would get what was saved up. So, um, but my plan was to only stay in for five years, pay back that scholarship. That's what I owed. And and then I would get out. And I, I stayed in because the Air Force kept teeing up great experiences for me and great opportunities for me. And and that's also what's happened at Syracuse. Yeah. You know, I just do the work and and whatever job you're asked to do, do the best at that job. And, and people will recognize it and give you an give you opportunities to do new and different things. Yeah, I feel the opportunities at this campus are endless. Whatever you want to do in life, I feel there's opportunity here. And like there's student veterans on this campus that um they created a club this year. Yeah. And it's just anything you want to do is possible. Yeah. And uh, I was just go back to what you said like the Air Force paid for your college. Not only paid for your undergrad, it paid all the way for your PhD, which is astonishing. Well, well they also in the middle paid for a master's degree too. Um wow. so before I went for my PhD, the Air Force also for two years, sent me to the University of Oregon to earn my MBA. So that that was before my PhD. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I mean, I and that's what I tell, you know, I, I talk to ROTC cadets, you know, here at Syracuse about those kinds of opportunities that, you know, it, the military values education. And they're, you know, whether it's the Army, the Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps, there are all kinds of in-service opportunities while you're serving to pursue advanced education. Yeah, like, um, so I went in normal, got my GI Bill. Yep. I think one of the ripple effects of this fabulous building is that I learned about a program called Vierney, formerly, mm-hmm. formerly known as Voc Rehab. Yep. And now uh, I got I just got approved this semester, and I was going to pay all for my professional degree. Yeah, yeah, and it's it great. Just, yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Like, I yeah. cannot ask for Like, there was ups and downs in the military, but yeah. I'm yeah. going to get a lot of education for free. Well, I, I think, and that's, that's one of the great, you know, if, if you look at what historians and, and sociologists um, when they look back at, at the, the original GI Bill after World War II, it was, you know, many will describe it as, as creating the middle class in America because it, it afforded so many people the opportunity for education that otherwise wouldn't have been available to them that it elevated an entire generation of families economically and, and socially in some pretty powerful ways. Yeah, well, in this semester after World War II, it actually just created the suburbs. Yeah, it did. Yeah. yeah All absolutely. the veterans coming back, they had yeah. to make houses outside of the city and, yeah. and you know, cars became important. And yeah, absolutely. A, a huge ripple effect yeah. of our military in America. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so 
Veterans come in, they say if they do one contract, they're early to mid 20s. Yep. They do contracts through the late 20s or 30s. Yep. How important is it to hit benchmarks in your life by a certain age? Because we feel a rush. Like, I had to hurry up yeah. and catch on my age group. Yeah. I, I mean, um, I'm not a big believer. <laughs> and only, only because, um, you know, I, I have, I have uh, I've, I've sort of found that whether it's veterans or even traditional students, you know, the ones who build this plan that's, you know, okay, you know, in, in a year I have to do done this and all with some objective at the end, um, you know, sometimes you get so blinded by the plan that you miss all these other opportunities. Literally, you don't see doors that open for you that may maybe take you down a different road that could be a, a better road. You know, I, I have over time become someone who is um, a little anti-life planning. I, I don't know the way, <laughs> a way to put it, only because I have found that just being open to saying yes to new opportunities that maybe weren't part of the plan um, has been very beneficial to me. And, you know, I, I realized, I mean, even the, even the, the PhD thing, when the Air Force presented me with that opportunity, my, my initial answer was no. And, and I had, uh, I was, at the time I was working for this Air Force four-star general and, you know, I, I saw myself, I had hit all those benchmarks that you're talking about. And I saw myself on a, a career fast track and, and it was actually the senior enlisted advisor for the, this, this command, the, the Air Force Material Command, who pulled me aside and took me in a room and said, what are you doing? You know, and, and this is the, the, this, the chief mm -hmm. um, talk. And at the, this point, I'm a captain and he's saying, you know, you're crazy. You know, I, he said, you know, every once in a while in your in your military career, the Air Force tees up, will tee up for you. And he used the term a now and later. And I'm like, chief, what are you talking about? I, um, I knew there was a candy called a now and later, I think. But I, and he said, you know, what I'm talking about is this is an opportunity now to make you a better officer to, you know, to, but but it's also one that's going to set you up for later. Wow. And you never say no. He, his point was you never say no to a now and later. You know, so he changed my mind. I said yes. And, and he was absolutely correct. You know, it, it, you know that, ex, that experience that the Air Force gave me made me, you know, more immediately, you know, made me a better leader. It, it helped me to think differently about um, what I do in terms of my military job. But it entirely set me up for later. You know, I'm, I'm in the later now, and it's because I said yes to that one opportunity that I was very quick to dismiss because it wasn't on the plan, right? Um, and that, that's, what I'm, that's, that's what I mean when I say, you know, sometimes if you get too focused on the milestones and the plan and the bet, you, you, you're blind or you will forego opportunities that um, you wouldn't even see coming. Wow, that's fantastic advice. It's uh. I might have topped yours to show up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good advice. So you show yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what made me say yes to yeah. uh, my internship over the summer. I did yeah. two simultaneously. I decided to wake up at like five in the morning for the football one. Yeah. It's like, oh, I like Dr. Haney, so I just got to show up. Just show, yeah, sometimes <laughs> that's half the, that's what leadership is about, just showing up. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have any advice for a veteran coming out of the service, either officer or enlisted? World's your oyster. You know, I, I, I think, you know, we, Again, sometimes we get so locked into, hey, this is what I did in the military, so I have to go do this in the, 
civilian world or, you know, the, the reality is, you know, I, I sort of look at that transition and hope people look at that transition as, okay, you know, I have this sushi menu of things that I can go do because, you know, the GI, things like the GI Bill, right? You don't, um, that the GI Bill is a, is a reset opportunity because it doesn't matter if you were infantry or an MP or a, or a electronics technician, that, that, that GI Bill is a, is a pivot opportunity to go do whatever it is you want. And, you know, don't let anybody talk you into, well, you know, this, this is what you did in the military. So these are the four jobs that you're eligible <laughs> yeah. for when, when you get out. I mean, the example I use all the time is, I mean, that there is a, there's a legitimate national shortage of truck drivers in the United States. And, you know, we get, we get all the time at the Institute, these, these companies, these big trucking companies calling, where are the veterans? You know, people drove trucks in the military and, but we can't find veterans to drive trucks for us. And, you know, you, you, you want to be polite, but you also want to, you know, you're thinking, well, you know what, just because somebody drove a truck in the military doesn't mean <laughs> they want to drive a truck for the rest of their life. To your question, my advice is um, pursue your passion and, and, you know, hit the reset button if you want to hit the reset button. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't say it quite like that, but when I was transferred from community college, I was like, I don't know what re- resources Syracuse has, but I know there would be pretty good resources that I could take yeah. advantage of. And that's why I probably reason I came here. So I'm really glad I came here. There's so many opportunities. I came here, that's it. I want to be a chiropractor. And yeah. then now I'm like, still in the field of like, physical therapy, but now I'm looking at law. Like, yeah. And I do want to be in the healthcare for sure. But like, there's so many opportunities and just learning a lot on this campus. Yeah. So one pers- one question I ask every guest is, what is your favorite quote and why? Uh, probably my, my, so this changes over time. So somebody that tells you they're going to have one favorite quote for life um, is somebody who doesn't, <laughs> maybe doesn't read all that <laughs> because, um, but, you know, over the, over the last couple of years, um, you know, I, I had the, let's call it an opportunity um, to, to, to lead the, the COVID response here at Syracuse University when we went through COVID and oh no wonder uh, your partner is all rising yeah, as many yeah. every day. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, COVID COVID reminded me that experience managing COVID at Syracuse reminded me in in very real, direct, everyday kind of ways. Um, you know, back to this word I used before, empathy. It reminded me the value and and the importance of empathy. And there's a there's a Maya Angelou quote. Um, that, that I now um, think about a lot. It's, it says, uh, the, the quote goes like this, I might not get it perfect, but they won't remember um, what you said, but they will remember how you made them feel. And, oh, wow. and, and that's, that's one that, um, that, I, that I think about a lot um, in, the, in the context of, of trying to be empathetic in how I lead. That's fantastic. Um. I think that really shows the type of leader you are. I've heard veterans on this campus say, like, they'll bleed for you. And, like, you know, I've heard, there's not too many leaders I've met in my whole life that I would do that for. And I heard multiple veterans on this campus say a lot of, like, really nice things about you. And then it really shows the way you got, you, like, not only said things, but your actions for, to your words. Well, it's back to the other quote. Hey, sometimes it's just about showing up. <laughs> I mean, that, that by itself, um, you know. Because that that's that speaks to how it makes people feel. Just having you show up um, sometimes is is enough. Wow. 
Oh, well, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to meet with me today. And I really, truly appreciate everything you've done on this campus for myself and all the student vendors and their families. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. And uh, I enjoyed it. It's a good, good conversation. Thank you.